Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're making progress, right? Mark chapter 6. We're very slow progress, but we're making progress. This sermon is entitled Astonished. Astonished. Much like the woman in this picture. That's astonished. You know, if this was a youth ministry event, I'd go around the room and have you give me your best astonished face, you know, but... We won't do that this morning, so you're off the hook. Uh, To be astonished means this. It means to be astounded, amazed, surprised, stunned, or even dumbfounded. So when's the last time you were astonished? When's the last time you encountered a person or a situation or something that just left you astounded or amazed or surprised, stunned, or dumbfounded? Well, in today's text, we're going to see that The Nazarenes are astonished in verses 1 through 3. And then ultimately, the Nazarene is astonished in verses 4 through 6. And perhaps by the time we get to the end, we too will be astonished, and hopefully for all the right reasons. So with that in mind, uh, would you please stand with me as I read the text? This is a shorter text today, so we're able to read it in its entirety And I think, again, that that is important, and it's important because it demonstrates our attitude toward God's Word. This is the very Word of God. And so it says, He went away from there, meaning Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Would you pray with me? Father, would you astonish us this morning with your presence, with your word, with your truth, with your Holy Spirit at work in us, among us? Father, if we have grown cold or apathetic to who Jesus truly is, would you wake us up this morning and remind us of who you are? We need you. And so we ask that this text would come alive by the power of your spirit and that you would minister to us at the point of our need. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon today is all about being astonished. The Nazarenes are astonished in the first three verses. Then the Nazarene is astonished in the last three verses. So let's look at that first section where the Nazarenes are astonished and see what was it that they found 
so astonishing. Look with me again at verse 1. It says, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now let's review the travels of Jesus and his disciples on our map. Okay, so first of all, blue circle number one, they've gone from Capernaum to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. That's, again, that blue circle. And that's when the disciples experienced the earthquake megastorm and the deliverance of the man with the legion of demons. And so that's when they were headed east. Then, as we saw last week, Jesus and his disciples went back across the lake to their ministry headquarters of Capernaum. That's the red circle number two, where in last week's sandwich text, Jesus healed the woman with the flow of blood. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And now today, um, we're on number three on the map, and that's the orange circle in this traverse that they make 25 miles southwest from Capernaum, his headquarters, to his hometown of Nazareth. And you're all familiar with Nazareth. We've talked about this before, but commentator Daniel Aiken, he said it like this. He said, Nazareth was a nowhere town made up of nobodies. The population is estimated to have been between 150 and 200. It is never mentioned in the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, or rabbinic literature. It only receives scant attention in the New Testament. Little wonder that Nathaniel said in John 14 or 146, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Back in the 80s, you might remember uh, John Cougar Mellencamp wrote a song about his experience growing up in a small town. How many of you are with me? All right, so I, I, I made a cultural reference. Sometimes they whiff, sometimes they land, and so it seems like that one may have landed. Um, it's interesting how the chorus from that song relates to Jesus here in Mark 6. The chorus says, No, I cannot forget from where it is that I come from. Cannot forget the people who love me. Well, I can be myself here in this small town, and people let me be just what I want to be. Well, unfortunately, that's not going to be the experience of Jesus in his small hometown that he has returned to. Jesus actually made two visits to Nazareth, and so let's sort this out. The first was what is known as his early Galilean ministry. And so if you're harmonizing the Gospels, this would have been in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. This was a year prior to what's happening in our text today. An early Galilean ministry um, in which Jesus visited Nazareth a year prior to what we're talking about today. And during that first visit, Jesus taught in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He read Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, that passage that starts out, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he concluded that sermon in a very profound way. He declared himself to be the fulfillment of that messianic prophecy. And how did that go over? Did not go over well with his audience, who then, I love this picture, um, they chased him. They chased him out of town, and we're going to kill him. Now, in today's text, it's a year later, during a late Galilean ministry, and that's our text today, Mark 6, 1 through 6. We pick up the story in verse 2, where it says, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Sounds very familiar. It's deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would say. And as Jesus preaches in the very same synagogue that he grew up in, the very same synagogue from which he was driven out a year earlier. And so I, my question was this. It's like, well, what's changed? 
What's changed in a year's time that it would go from them chasing him out, wanting to kill him, to now they welcome him to come speak in the synagogue? And the only thing I can come up with is that, you know what, Jesus is popular now. He's popular with the crowds. And so they've heard about the miracles. They've heard about the mighty things that he's done. And so temporarily, they have given the popular miracle worker permission to come back and to speak to them. The only question is, how is he going to be received this time? Second half of verse 2 tells us, And many who heard him were astonished. It's Greek ekpleso. It's an interesting word. It means to strike out of one's senses like you got hit on the head with a blow and you're stunned. You just can't quite make sense of things. You're trying to regain your equilibrium. Well, what exactly was it that astonished the Nazarenes this way? How did Jesus astonish them? Verse 2 goes on to tell us. The crowd said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, you'll see that there are actually three things that astonished the Nazarenes right here. The first of them was his words. The words of Jesus astonished them. They asked, where did this man get these things? And when they say these things, that phrase refers to his teaching, which was as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When Jesus spoke, it was as if it was the very words of God. And so, like, what is this? We're we're astonished. This is different than other rabbis who come and speak to us. This is a whole other level. This is as if it is God. The second thing that astonished the Nazarenes was his wisdom. His wisdom. They ask, what is this wisdom given to him? And when you think about those times when Jesus was confronted with questions, and they were questions not really intended to have authentic answers. They were questions intended to trap him. And Jesus had this uncanny ability to verbally outwit his opponents and to do so with a spirit of meekness. He wasn't a jerk, but he was able to, with wisdom, outwit his opponents. It was as if he was able to employ the very wisdom of God. And so the Nazarenes were astonished by words and by wisdom, but also by his works, his works. They said, how are such mighty works done by his hands? And most recently, you recall chapters 4 and 5, Jesus demonstrated his power and authority over four Ds. What were the Ds? First of all, danger. Next, demons. Then disease. And then death. Jesus, through his works, demonstrated power and authority over all of these things. And word got out, and people are hearing about this, and he's doing the very works of God. So it is with words, wisdom, and works of Jesus that astonished the Nazarenes. However, however, what really astonished the Nazarenes was their perception that Jesus was one of them. What really astonished the Nazarenes was their perception that Jesus was one of them. Look again at verse 2 where it says, and and pay attention to that phrase in blue, Uh, many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? This man, what does that verbiage tell you about their understanding of who Jesus was? He's just a human like the rest of us. He's not God. He's just a man. 
And and further, they go on to say about him in verse 3, is not this the carpenter? The Greek is tekton, a worker in wood, stone, or metal. It tells us that Jesus was a craftsman. And don't miss the fact that this is kind of mind-blowing. I wish we knew more about those first 30 years of Jesus on earth, but he spent more time working as a craftsman than in doing anything else, right? And now in that culture, that tekton, that craftsman, it was viewed to be an honorable profession, It was a good way to make a living and to make a contribution to society, but it was not viewed to be upper class. It was viewed to be incompatible with being a rabbi. The book of Sirach, it's a second century BC Jewish work of wisdom literature, and it says this about those who work with their hands, like a craftsman, like Jesus was. It said, all these, the plowman, the smith, the potter, they rely on their hands, and all are skillful in their own work. Without them, no city can be inhabited, and wherever they live, they will not go hungry. Yet, they are not sought out for the counsel of the people, nor do they attain eminence in the public assembly. They do not sit in the judge's seat, nor do they understand the decisions of the courts. They cannot expound discipline or judgment, and they are not found among the rulers. And and so in their minds, in the minds of the people, it was inconceivable that a craftsman could be a rabbi, let alone the Messiah. That's just not how Jewish society worked. And in those days, in those times, who you were in society was typically where you stayed in society. And then, check this out, the Nazarenes even bring his mother into it. All right, You know you're in trouble when they bring your mother into it. So they say in verse 3, Is not this the son of Mary? Now that phrase ought to cause you to turn your head and say, That's odd. There's a lot lurking beneath this question. Normally in that culture, a son was identified how? By the father. Identified by the father's name. But here, the Nazarenes do not identify Jesus as the son of Joseph, but as the son of Mary. Why? Well, perhaps it's as simple as we we understand that at this time, Joseph is dead. Okay, Joseph is no longer around. But more likely, in context, and what they're trying to say, this was an insult directed at Mary, and an insult directed at Jesus, highlighting the perception even then, even 30-some-odd years later, that Jesus was an illegitimate child conceived in scandal. And that certainly is not the pedigree of a rabbi, and especially of the Messiah. And so in just a couple of simple phrases, the, the Nazarenes question the credentials of Jesus. He's just a carpenter. And the character of Jesus, he's the son of Mary born amidst scandal. But they're not done. They're not done. They go on to say in verse 3, Is not this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Essentially, they're saying this. Hey, we know you. And we know your family, including your brothers and sisters. You grew up among us with your brothers and sisters. You're all ordinary like we are. So Jesus, just who do you think you are? And notice that no one was saying, oh, I always knew that you would grow up to be the Messiah. No one is saying that. They're actually saying quite the opposite. And so the last part of verse 3 says, 
and they took offense at him. They took offense at that. The Greek is scandalizo, literally means to stumble. It's the word from which we get our English word scandal. The whole idea that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived among them for 30 years, was now claiming to be the Messiah, that was scandalous to them. It was, in fact, a stumbling block, and the, the kind that the Apostle Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, when Paul wrote, we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, which comes from that same word, scandalons, from scandalizo, to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So here's where we put all this together. People stumble over Jesus when he doesn't fit their preconceived notions of what they think he should be. People stumble over Jesus when he doesn't fit their preconceived notions of what they think he should be. And so what really astonished the Nazarenes, as we said earlier, was their perception that Jesus was one of them. They, they couldn't, this was the hard part for them. They couldn't deny the extraordinary nature of his words or his wisdom and his works, those things. It's like, yeah, we see it, we get it, but neither could they deny that he was one of them, that he grew up there for 30 years. And in their minds, it just didn't add up, which is why Kenneth West said they could not explain him, so they rejected him. They could not explain him, so they rejected him. And they responded to him with astonished unbelief. Astonished unbelief. So that is the first section of our text, those first three verses. The Nazarenes are astonished. Let's move to the second where the Nazarene is astonished. Look with me at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus is here quoting a very familiar, a common rabbinic proverb, highlighting the facts that, that prophets were typically misunderstood and rejected even by their own families, especially by their own families, especially by those who knew them best. Now, why were prophets in that day treated so poorly? Well, because there were two functions of a prophet. Two functions of a prophet. And the first of these is forth-telling. F-O-R-T-H, telling. Uh, Forthtelling has to do with speaking God's word regarding the present. This is by far what biblical prophets did the most. We typically think of prophets, oh, they're the ones who tell about the future. And that's true at times. But more than anything, they spoke God's word regarding the present. And that message was largely one of calling out the sin of the people and then calling them to repentance. Now, raise your hand if you like having your sin called out. We don't really like that. However, listen carefully. This might be the point that you need to take home with you today. The more that we mature in our Christian faith, the more that we will welcome having our sin called out. The more that we mature in our Christian faith, the more that we will welcome having our sin called out. Why? Because we desire more than anything to be holy and to be pleasing to God. And if that means welcoming someone into our lives to help us see our sin in a way that maybe we're not seeing our sin, we say, so be it. Bring it. Bring it. That's why one of the, the marks of a, of a disciple is that they are accountable. They're accountable. They welcome loving accountability into their lives to help them see their sin maybe in a way that they themselves 
do not. Well, the audiences addressed by the prophets typically did not have that maturity, and they did not like this ministry of forth-telling, of having their sin called out and being called to repentance, and so um, that led them to kill the prophets. The second function of the prophet was foretelling, F-O-R-E, foretelling, which is to speak God's word regarding the future, and that could also be quite unpopular. Why? Well, especially when it predicted future events involving God's judgment, God's judgment. Nobody wants to hear about the wrath of God, and so prophets involved in foretelling were also known to be rejected and put to death. Well, it's interesting here that Jesus does, in fact, what he calls himself a prophet. He lumps himself in with those who have come before him, those who called out sin, those who called people to repentance and called for judgment to come. And just as those prophets of old were unpopular and put to death, so it would be with Jesus. And even most recently in Jesus' own life, he had his friend, John the Baptist, who functioned in this way, who was rejected and put to death as well. And so here, his rejection in his hometown of Nazareth is a foreshadowing, if you will, of his rejection and crucifixion to come in Jerusalem. The Nazarene here is astonished that the Nazarenes, his own people, they're they're the hard soil that Jesus taught about earlier in the parable of the sower. The, The hearts of the Nazarenes are hardened. They're unable to see and to receive truth. They're like the people that Stephen spoke about in Acts 7.51, where Stephen's giving the sermon, and he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And by the way, um, what happened to Stephen after this sermon? He was put to death. Well, all this leads to some very sad and tragic words in verse 5 of Mark 6. Mark 6, 5 says, And Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, is anybody a little uncomfortable with that verbiage? He could do no mighty work there. It doesn't sound right. After all, we teach that Jesus is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. So why does the scripture here say that he could do no mighty work there? It might cause us to think that Jesus is like Santa's sleigh in the movie Elf. Do you remember that? Where Santa's sleigh can't fly unless the people are exercising enough Christmas cheer. Is that how it is with Jesus? Jesus can't do stuff unless there's a sufficient amount of faith to to urge him on. That's not how it works at all. Jesus is not limited by anyone or anything. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He will do what he will do. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself with the name, I am Yahweh. I will be who I will be. No limitations. However, he most certainly can choose to withhold his power in an environment where hearts have been hardened against him. In such an environment of rejection, of unbelief, there was was no point in performing the miracles. I mean, these people had their minds made up. They were entrenched. Their, Their soil was hard. So Jesus actually does what he taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. I love this picture. Um, 
Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine. Now, it's going to sound harsh, but as far as Jesus was concerned, the unbelief of the Nazarenes made them swine and made them pigs, and Jesus was not going to cast his pearls of miracles, of wonders before pigs. He was not going to perform his miracles where there was not good soil, where people were not receptive to the truth and who he truly was. And so this environment of unbelief, especially in his hometown of Nazareth, it astonished Jesus. And as it says in verse 6, he marveled. He was astonished because of their unbelief. Now, this is one of two times, actually, in the scriptures that Jesus marveled. Can you think of the first one? It's actually kind of the other side of the coin of this one. There was one other time in the Gospels where Jesus marveled because of faith. Do you remember? I heard somebody say it. Did somebody say centurion? Yeah, that's my church. That's my church. The first time that Jesus marveled was at the great faith of the Roman centurion um, who said, hey, Jesus, all you have to do to heal my servant, just say the word. You don't even have to show up. I, I know who you are. I know you are God. All you have to do is just say the word. And, and, and Jesus responded in Luke 7, 9. He said, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even Israel, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So the first time that Jesus marveled or was astonished was at the great faith of the Gentile centurion, But today's text gives us the second time that Jesus marveled or was astonished, and it is due to a lack of faith. It's due to unbelief in his hometown of Nazareth, which must have just greatly grieved his heart. I think a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus' mother and his brothers coming to take possession of him because they thought he was crazy, and now his hometown thinks he's crazy, So we see in our text today, the Nazarenes are astonished. The Nazarene is astonished. Let's shift now to application and ask, how should we then live? In general, I believe that the text teaches that we too should be astonished. Like the woman we saw earlier, there she is. We too should be astonished. We should be astounded, amazed, surprised, stunned, and dumbfounded, but for all the right reasons. We see the the, um, Nazarenes astonished for the wrong reasons. We see Jesus astonished because of his disappointment. Um, According to our text today, we should first be astonished that Jesus gives second chances. We should first be astonished that Jesus gives second chances. Personally, I'm astonished that Jesus went to that place where a year earlier the people tried to kill him. I don't think I'd go back there. But here's Jesus giving them a second chance, just like he does with us. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't give up on us? Aren't you glad that Jesus gives us second and sometimes third, fourth, fifth chances? The question is this, what will you do with the second chance that Jesus has given you? What will you do with the second chance that Jesus has given you? Because make no mistake, oh, while Jesus is so patient, 
And he's so gracious, even to the point of going back to Nazareth when they had tried to kill him a year earlier. A day of judgment is coming. A day of judgment was, is coming when time will be up. And so the time to get right with God and to make the most of the second chance that he has given you is now. We have far too many examples within our church family right now to say, you know what, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And we, we can assume that, hey, 10 years from now, I'm planning on doing this, I'm planning on doing that, and we don't know what's happening 10 minutes from now. Um, family talking with this week, some of you saw it on the prayer chain, and um, person started feeling poorly on Friday and is no longer with us today. What will you do with the second chance that Jesus has given you. Next, be astonished that Jesus is everything he says he is. Be astonished that Jesus is everything he says he is. Say that word, everything. Everything he says he is. Because the Nazarenes were unwilling to receive the totality of who Jesus was. He did not conform to their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah should be, so they rejected him. And you know what? People do the same thing today. They treat Jesus, and even within the church, they treat the Bible like a smorgasbord. You know, where you can pick and choose what you like. I remember I always loved visiting my grandparents because they were old country buffet people. We'd visit, and we'd load up, and we'd go to the old country buffet. And I can still hear my grandfather, well, you can get whatever you want. And, uh, and leave behind what you don't want. If you don't like the wrath of God, then you can ignore it and explain away those parts of the Bible. Or if you don't like what Jesus has to say about things like gender, sexuality, and marriage... You can ignore those parts of Jesus, and you can explain away those parts of the Bible. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson literally did this? He literally constructed something called, this is hard to read, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. Sounds good, doesn't it? Except that, really what Thomas Jefferson was doing was and pasting with a razor and glue, numerous sections from the New Testament as extractions of the doctrine of Jesus, Jefferson's condensed composition excludes, cuts out, all miracles of Jesus and most mentions of the supernatural, including sections of the four Gospels that contain the resurrection and most other miracles and passages that portray Jesus as divine. Now, I will say this, at least Jefferson was honest about his approach to Scripture. Many of us do the same thing, we just don't admit it. Friends, we can't pick and choose what we like about Jesus, discarding what we don't like about Jesus, or what we like about the Bible, and discard what we don't like about the Bible. Rather, we must be astonished in a good way 
and embrace everything that Jesus says he is, the totality of who he is, and we must receive him as he really is. Lastly, be astonished that Jesus works in a climate of faith. Be astonished that Jesus works in a climate of faith, a climate of belief and not the climate of unbelief that Jesus experienced in Nazareth. Again, not because Jesus can't, but more accurately, he won't. We live in a particular climate here in northern Michigan, do we not? According to this map, we are a humid, continental, cool summer climate. This is, in fact, the reason that, um, that, that, that dark blue... Um, that's what creates all the traffic on 115 on the weekends, right? Everybody wants to come to the dark blue. Similarly, I believe churches can have a climate. Churches can have a climate, a faith climate. Um, in regard to faith, they can be either hot or cold or lukewarm, you know, kind of like the varying degrees of color and temperature on our map. And it raises the question, church, what is our faith climate as a church? Are we hot, full of faith, expectation for what God has said and what God will do? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Believing that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is alive, that the tomb is empty, and that he is at work powerfully even today. Or are we cold? lacking in faith, and perhaps even exercising unbelief. And then there's the possibility that we're lukewarm. Now, I believe one of the greatest measuring sticks of our climate as a church when it comes to faith is how we approach prayer. If you believe that God answers prayer, then you pray. But if you don't, you don't. And so I just use that as a challenge to you to say, hey, if prayer is the measuring stick of our faith climate as a church, what is prayer and how we pray as a church? What does that say about our faith climate? Nazareth was cold, and Jesus did little in that cold faith climate. But Jesus works most in a climate of faith. Listen to this quote by a... An old preacher, Adrian Rogers. Any Adrian Rogers fans here? Yeah, okay. He says, The measure of your success or failure as a Christian is your faith. For the Bible clearly and plainly says, According to your faith, be it unto you. Now, I'm going to stop there just for a second. That is not a name it, claim it statement. There's so much about why God does what he does that I don't understand. And it's not about, about if, if you have enough faith, then he will. If you don't have enough, then he won't. So keep that in mind. Now, we meet one another, he says, and we say, how are you feeling? We ought to say, how are you faithing? Right? How are you faithing? Because how you faith is a lot more important than how you feel. It is not according to how you feel. It is not according to your fame. It is not according to your fortune. It is not according to your fate, not according to your friends, but according to your faith be it unto you. Now remember, just as a lack of faith does not prevent Jesus from doing anything, faith does not coerce 
Jesus to do anything. But as Adrian Rogers has cited in this quote, Jesus most often works in a climate of faith. And what is our faith climate as a church? And what does our prayer say about that? So in our text today, we've seen that the Nazarenes are astonished. The Nazarene is astonished and that we too should be astonished. Astonished that Jesus gives second chances that Jesus is everything he says he is, and that Jesus works in a climate of faith. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, may this be a church that is red hot with faith, full of expectation and anticipation that the God who rose from the dead is at work in us and among us and through us. God, where we have wavered in our faith or where we um, are lacking, God, would you do a fresh work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit? God, I pray for anyone who is here today who is passive in the midst of the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance that you've given. God, I pray that today would be the day that they leave passivity behind and that they step out in faith and say, today is the day of salvation. I am crossing the line of faith. I am putting my trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of my sins. God, may today be the day of salvation for someone who is going to make the most of that second chance that you've given to them. And perhaps there are believers who are today who, have, who are wandering in directions they know they should not wander. And you've been gracious and you've been patient, but today is the day that they make the most of the second chance that you've given to them and they repent of their sins and they get back on the path that you have established for them, the narrow path of righteousness. And so today, God, I pray that that would be someone's testimony. God, we love you. We thank you for being so good to us. And we receive by faith today the totality of who Jesus is. May we conform our lives to Jesus and not try to conform him to ours. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.